Hello everyone, my name is Joanne Lockwood and I am your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-double-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 77, with the title, Breathe. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Jamie Reed. Jamie describes himself as a vocal coach and vocal health expert. When I asked Jamie to describe his superpower, he said that he believes not only does everyone have a beautiful voice, but most importantly, that it should be heard fearlessly and proudly. Hello, Jamie. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joanne. I'm really delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. We've talked about this for so many months now and we finally got around to it. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Jamie, why is breathing so important? So... Somebody much wiser than me once said, life is not measured in years, it's measured in breaths. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Um, breathing is the fuel supply for the voice. It's the fuel supply for life. Uh, and we all share the same breath. We all share the same air and, and oxygen. So it's a very um, equal, very... Uh, available thing that all of us have uh, and all of us need. And breath as a vocal coach. So I, I began my career as an actor and as a performer and moved into coaching about 18 years ago. Uh, and breath is so fundamental to the way that we vocalize and how we produce our voice and how we express ourselves that it just felt so integral and so important that that's why, uh, that's why the word was there in the, in the, the text that I sent over. That's why it popped out so much, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it resonated straight with me because uh, as a professional speaker, and even before I was a professional speaker, when I was maybe a public speaker or uh, a corporate speaker in the corporate world, I'd often find that I, I forget to breathe. I'd end up in this tie myself into the, or paint myself into the corner where I had no breath left, mm. and my or my anxiety levels or my panic mechanism kicked in, and I is. I, I, often think that many people who have an anxiety or a fear of public speaking worry about losing their breath or not being able to get their words out. Yeah, it's such a primal thing. It's such an important thing. And nobody really focuses on it day to day. We're getting much better in in the world at large about being aware of the usefulness and the benefits of mindfulness and meditation and so on. But by and large, nobody's ever thought about breathing because we just do it luckily i mean <laughs> we'd be in trouble if we didn't but as you say when you when you come under pressure actually the breath because it's part of the uh, part of the cardiovascular system if the breathing speeds up or shallows then the heart rate speeds up or shallows and those things have a, an impact on how we feel and how we feel has a huge impact on how we express ourselves and, and what we say and how we say it and actually that i think that's the big thing for me as a as a vocal coach because i work with 
genuinely anyone with a voice. So I've worked with everything from opera singers to rabbis to um, people with vocal health difficulties to business CEOs to actors. Um, I mean, you name it. I do all kinds of different work with voices. And actually how you feel about yourself affects the way that you breathe, affects the way that you speak, and therefore affects the way that you're perceived. And it's such an important interface for human beings. It's a, it's a very tribal behavior voice. We hear a voice and decide actually if this person belongs to our tribe or us to theirs, is this somebody I can connect with? It's where we get accents and dialects and you hear that kind of, um, you know, kind of corporate boardroom thing where the voice goes down here somewhere where everyone's kind of in that space where you hear the, oh, it's a new baby. Oh, that's lovely. And that kind of space in there. And it's such an emotional response and such a primal response that if we can get control over it, we can really start to feel in, in control of how we express ourselves and how we're perceived and how our emotions are expressed and perceived as well. That's so true. I'm thinking about that. We can often, our pitch of our voice can increase as our anxiety or our panic or uh, when we're not maybe emotionally in control of ourselves. And that can lead us to sound less credible or less capable because we, we, we associate deep, steady resonance with authority. Yeah. Which is a curious thing in and of itself. There was a piece of research last year that I was reading um, not that long ago that showed that a drop of only about 25 hertz, which is a very small drop in pitch in the voice uh, amongst CEOs in the US, uh, is associated with an extra 187,000 US dollars of income for that person per year. Um, and something in the order of a, an increase of about 400,000 US dollars in the size of the business that they run. And that's just 25 hertz, which I found that really interesting, but also I don't know, it's slightly jarred for me because a lot of what I, people come in with the idea that there's a right or a wrong way to speak. And that just isn't true. That's a hangover from the idea of RP, received pronunciation, when everybody on the BBC all spoke like this, you know, welcome to the BBC Light Service. And you didn't hear regional dialects really until uh, um, until your man from Big Brother in 1999, you know, D44 in the Big Brother house and everyone kind of went, oh, wow, what's that? And actually that sense of right and wrong is something that we really carry. Oh, in this space, I need to be this person. So I get so many uh, women in business coming in to the studio to work with me or working online with me saying, oh, I need a lower voice because I, I'm surrounded by men and I've got to be able to command authority. And although part of the work is in that area, the bigger part of the work with those clients is helping them to feel the authority and the authenticity in the voice that they already have and owning their presence so that actually that audience learns to listen to whatever voice they're hearing rather than just assuming that this lower pitch range is, is right in inverted commas in that environment. I, I get a bit of a beam up on it about it, Joanne. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I mean, I, yeah. as you know, I, I'm a transgender woman. I transitioned about six years ago. And at the time, I was in this big dilemma about my voice because, as you said, it's a critical part of one of those primary senses of how we categorize people and, and put them into a box and, and assess their worth or my tribe or not my tribe. Yeah. And I, I wrestled long and hard about my voice, whether I could be a professional speaker, whether I could be taken seriously. And I decided one day I was just going to, it's my voice. It's my voice. Why? try and educate or train it or do differently uh, because it's another cognitive load you have to deal with 
the phone, yeah. I'm pretty sure after time, after you trained it, maybe after months and months and months, it becomes more natural. But I just decided, hey, and I think the other thing you just said there was about how that, that pitch gives a certain level of authority as well. And, and for me, it's worked mm. as a bit of a shock and awe tactic. So I can stand on stage <laughs> and just hold the room before I speak. And then when I speak, it, people kind of look at me and go, wow, where did that come from? And it's, uh, so I yeah. play it to my advantage sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And it, as I say, the authenticity thing is the big part of it. And actually the fact that you had that thought and when, do I need to do something about this? Actually, no, I don't. This is my voice. It means something to me. That's, that's the thought that is more important than any other in, in the vocal aspect. Hmm. Um, especially for trans and non-binary clients that I work with who are maybe beginning to question how the world might view them or if they're in the process of transitioning. Sometimes the voice can be a hindrance. And sometimes, as you say, it can be something where you go, actually, no, this is really authentically me. I already know this part of myself so well that I don't want to change it, but maybe I do want to optimize it. Or maybe I want to be able to have a wider range of color in my voice, you know, whatever the particular thing is. Mm. Nine out of 10 times people come into the room with one idea of what they perceive the problem to be. And again, I use heavy inverted commas around the idea of the problem and actually they leave with a fresh understanding of going, oh, actually, no, I thought it was this. But now having talked it through and, and understood a bit more about the process, it's uh, it's often a really different picture that mm. they leave with, which is a great part of the work. I love that. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. My, my voice doesn't work for me all the time. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are, there, are, there are times, say, for example, uh, I've been in gendered spaces so public toilets, mm. toilets, and my wife's been with me, and she starts having a conversation through the toilet door, or through the cubicle wall, and, and 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 I don't respond because my voice without my image is is incongruent, and in that space, yeah, it, it could be perceived as being confusing for people outside. I've actually I've actually had someone shout out in a, in a lady's toilet once, "Is there a man in there?" And I said, "No, no, it's just Joanne." So, oh, sorry, Joanne. So I'm very, I'm very conscious again about this, um, how we print imprint people based on voice and, and visuals. And so I, I, there are times yeah. when I do, uh, I am very conscious about it in certain spaces. Yeah, I, I can, I can imagine that I can, I can appreciate what, what that would be like. And it is, yeah. I think an experience, the particular experience that you describe, I think is really specific to the, the trans community, but also I think there are lots of places where people feel that their voice doesn't represent who they are in some mm. way. You often get the reverse thing um, where somebody's on the, it's so common for people to be misgendered on the phone, um, regardless of whether they're trans or cis or transitioning or non-binary or, or whatever. Actually, you you get that sense of, oh, you didn't understand who I was. You don't know who I am. And that, that there's a dissonance there that isn't necessarily comfortable. Um, and also I've been working with a couple of singers recently, um, who are non-binary singers. And it's been really interesting because there's a real conversation that's opened up there that if you wanted to sort of almost point to the science, if you like, and go, well, okay, a traditional cis male voice would have these parameters. A traditional cis female voice would have these parameters often trans people are working towards those parameters in some way or understanding which aspects of themselves are represented in one or the other. And for the first non-binary singer that I worked with who came in 
saying not only actually do I want to change the keys of these songs and not be singing male or female rep, but actually singing from a mixture of them, I want to find my non-binary singing voice. And I kind of went, wow, that's really cool. What does that sound like in your head? And they said, actually, I'd, I don't know. I don't know what it sounds like. It doesn't sound like anything yet. Let's play together and explore. And it was so lovely to have that opportunity to figure out what we were reaching for. Was it pitch range? Was it timbre? Was it repertoire? Was it a mixture of those things? There's a, a difference, a statistical difference between the pitch, sorry, the um, the pace and the inflection of the cis female and cis male voices. So was there something in that that we were working toward? Uh, and even the breath, which again speaks to the inclusion thing and the fact that we there are things we don't even notice in inclusion that oftentimes if a person feels they have the right in a certain circumstance to speak, to be heard, they will breathe more. They literally take up more air in the room um, because they will breathe more deeply. And that adds to a sense of presence and a sense of command. And we think, oh, right, I'm supposed to listen to this person. Um, Often with public speakers, people have been trained to use their pauses, exactly as you just said, actually, where you take that moment to let the room land and be in your presence before you start. And sometimes it works really well. And if people aren't employing it as successfully as they might, then it doesn't. There was a famous speech that I'm going to struggle to remember the beginning of now, but that Tony Blair gave. And Tony Blair was a big pauser. Uh, and it was a power pause because there was that sense that if you kind of stop speaking for a moment, people have to lean in and, and, and listen. And it becomes really frustrating. It's like, oh, my God, Tony, get on with it. <laughs> Um, and when it works, it works well. And when it's overused, it becomes a, a problem. So that sense of power breathing, taking in the breath, holding the air, holding your presence in a space, and then vocalizing from that, you've automatically taken power and oxygen from other people in the space. So we kind of have to fight for that a little bit. <laughs> I, I so remember those type, that type of, as you say, that extra pause. And I think it's because it's an unnatural pause in a, in a mid sentence. If it's kind of at the end mm. of a paragraph or on a, on a, on a virtual page turn of a chapter, then you can allow the audience to refresh, to embed, to soak it in. But if you're, if you're trying to trick your audience into, as you say, leaning in and, and trying to grab their attention, it, be, it, be, it can become a bit, a bit exhausting for the audience, can't it? I think that's the trouble. It wears you out. Listening yeah. To that. Yeah. You don't want your audience to be working. Um, that's that's the last thing you need. You want them to yeah. be engaged, but not having to to work. I should just say, by the way, I'm going to apologise to you and the listeners. I'm currently being buzzed by a helicopter over the top of the studio that I'm speaking to you from. So if there's background rumbling, I apologise. There's something flying very low overhead. <laughs> <laughs> we live not far from Goodwood Airport, and we often get uh, light aircraft and helicopters flying over here as well. Yeah, we're on some training route for... Um, uh, I think it's RAF Benson. It's with the, the the helicopters. We're on a training route down here. They follow. Uh, they buzz the canal, which is about a two minute walk from the house. So, the twin twin yeah. prop chinooks. Yeah, yeah, they fly quite yeah, low as well, don't exactly. they? Yeah. So yeah, you, so there's about, one of those making a guest appearance. You talk about non-binary singers, and I, I, the person that springs to my mm. mind immediately is Sam Smith. And yeah, I find I find Sam's uh, delivery because they have such a huge vocal range the high notes and they can also bring the, de- the depth and the, the real resonance in there as well. I, I get drawn in to the song, to the words, because they, they, I find they really, mm. really speak to me. And I, I, if I, if I wasn't aware of Sam's gender, 
I, I wouldn't even care because the song is no. and the delivery is so powerful. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think Sam Smith is a great example that when you are not attached to what society tells you someone is supposed to sound like, when you can mm. in some way unattach yourself from that, you open up a whole range of possibility in terms of both pitch range, pardon the pun, but also in terms of the manner of delivery, the expectation of how heavy or light the sound is going to be. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there's a real opening up there because actually so much of it is societal conditioning that when you look at Western cis male voices as a statistical analysis, the sense of, oh, I must have a low voice is more or less society saying men are supposed to be, again, heavy inverted commas, big, loud, strong, all of these kind of adjectives that have tended to be used. And girls are supposed to be light, small, unthreatening. And it's such nonsense, but it tends to be what society has told us. So for example, statistically, the cis male voice, the pitch range that is acceptable to society in this country or in the West at large is lower than it is, for example, in West Africa, where a high male voice is quite celebrated, um, especially in singing. Um, but actually there's no sense of, oh, you have to speak low, you know, using a much wider kind of pitch range is completely acceptable. Um, and actually by the same token, the traditional cis female voice, the pitch range can be lower in, uh, in South Africa and in some of those areas than it is in, uh, in Asia. So there's, it, there's a lot of, societal conditioning. Mm. And fundamentally, we all have the same instrument. Some people are born with a Steinway and some people are born with a pub piano, but it's basically the same instrument. And anyone can learn to operate the thing, um, whether you're singing or speaking. And so knowing that physiologically, for the vast majority of people, there are very few differences between our voice and the next person that we're going to meet, maybe some structural and size things. But actually, basically, we've all got the same kit in there. It's society that tells us what we're supposed to sound like. Mm. And actually we can answer back by saying, well, no, I sound like this. And this is where my authenticity is. And this is my voice. And the voice is where we tell people we love them and where we tell people we hate them and where we scream and where we cry and where we laugh. Uh, and I, I only half joking <laughs> quite often say to people that actually the larynx is such an emotional thing that on Valentine's Day, I think we all ought to give each other cards with larynxes on because it's much more emotional than the heart is. <laughs> That's so true, yeah. Because your you, your voice can crack and and lose lose stability, if you like, and uh, under emotional stress. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. And and laughter is a vocal. We call them vocal gestures in in voice science. Laughter is a vocal gesture. Um, crying is a vocal gesture. And a lot of the time, you get people. What, what I spend most of my time doing is actually encouraging people to make sounds they can already make, and then using them in a different context. So, for example. If people kind of think of that really moany teenager voice, like, oh, mom, it's not fair, that kind of space in there. Actually, if you take that into a song voice, um, to five, I don't know, if I just kind of sing a note and just go, ah, and then if I kind of cry at it and go, oh, moany teenager, ah, it becomes more operatic in its tonality because there's a something called thyroid tilt. There's a movement in the larynx that is produced when we make the vocal gesture of crying. Whereas on the other hand, if I cheer... Uh, which I'm going to back away from the microphone because I don't want to explode people's AirPods. But if I kind of cheer in the opposite direction of the computer and just go, hey, yay. If I do that and hold it, I'm basically belting a rock song going, yay. 
yeah, it's, it's cheering. It's a vocal gesture we can already do. So uh, when you were talking about Sam Smith, they use such a wide range of vocal gestures that include uh, the kind of the falsetto-y, very light sound, the cry sound, the belt sound. And they're all things that actually each of us physically can already do, but mentally, do we have permission? Has society or have we ourselves or have those around us given us permission to make that sound and to own the noise that we make? And that's where the work is often you know, often needs to be done. You said just now that we all have the same instrument. Some of them are just a bit, a bit rougher at the edges, a bit larger, a bit smaller, whatever it may be. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So how much of our voice and the way we sound is nurture rather than nature? I would say a large majority of it. So the difference the only physiological difference is to do with the hormones that hit us at puberty or in, in some cases in transition. Um, but when the larynx gets a hit of testosterone at a male puberty or for a trans man, if they go on to testosterone, the larynx grows at that point. Um, and because the larynx is bigger, the vocal cords are longer and the instrument you're playing is bigger and that's why it has a, a more bass timbre to it. So if you think of someone playing a trombone and somebody playing a flute, they could play the same note as each other, but the timbre would be noticeably different because of the size of the pipework of the instrument. So when the larynx gets a testosterone hit, it gets bigger. Um, and as you've already touched on, that can happen. So for trans men, when they're transitioning, if they go on to T, the larynx will, will grow and they go through a voice break process for trans women, if they have been through a, a cis male puberty, the you can't ungrow a tree. So once the larynx has grown, it doesn't shrink back. So actually, for trans women, the coaching work is necessary if they want to change the way that they sound. And as you've already touched on, there's no no need for that to happen. It's entirely kind of down to the authenticity of the person. But Apart from that one difference of testosterone causing the larynx to grow, essentially the physiology is the same across everybody. We all have the same capability. Um, I was having the conversation for 15 years. I ran a drama school uh, and was working with um, with actors in training on a full-time basis. And one of my colleagues there uh, is a, a woman with a very low bass resonance voice. She's got a really lovely, rich kind of beautiful butterscotch kind of voice. And actually my spoken voice is quite high and my singing voice is quite high. And we were talking to the students about uh, voice and gender and characterization. And when you're working, um, in fact, as we are, when it's just a voice that, that people are hearing, how we're perceiving that sound and how as an actor, you can engage that audience. And somebody said, oh yes, but women have higher voices than men. And I said, well, no, it's not that they, you can have a more bass timbre to it. But actually, if I stand next to, to Claire, who is my colleague, and we both say the alphabet to you, I have a little gadget I use on my computer that shows you the pitch that the speaker is using. Uh, and lo and behold, Claire was a good few hertz below me in our natural speaking ranges. But it's the timbre um, that can change. We can work with the timbre and move it up and down. So a lot of what we perceive as vocal differences are in fact vocal similarities, just with a few little nips and tucks around the edge. Could you just explain to me what timbre is? I'm not, not sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So for example, if I, um, 
<laughs> this is going to sound very odd for your listeners now. So stand, stand by everybody. Do not adjust your sets. I'm actually making these noises. <laughs> um, so I'm going to hold one note so that I'm not changing the, the pitch. So the actual pitch, if I were to make a pitch change, I'd be going and you'd hear a change of note. Yeah, exactly. Kind of moving up and down. What I'm going to do is hold one note. So if you imagine in your head a, a graph, the graph is flatlining. There's no undulation in it. And then what I'm going to do is change the treble and bass in that sound. So you'll hear a bass frequency and a treble frequency and I'll, I'll move between. So so that's the same note throughout so therefore if i speak to you from this position here with my larynx really low i sound a little bit like eeyore actually from winnie the pooh (laughs) but if i kind of speak with my larynx quite low down here it's got a bass timbre but i can speak quite high in my pitch range and still keep that kind of bass voice in there whereas on the other hand like I said, I'm, do, do not adjust your sets. This is actually happening. On the other hand, I can talk in a, a lower pitch range, but if I raise my larynx up and make the sound smaller, I've got more treble frequency in there, and I kind of turn into as mayor of the Munchkin City in the county of the land of Oz. So pitch and timbre, that, that timbre is to do with the texture of how much bass and treble is in the sound. And often they're attached, so often we'll think of, you know, kind of the low voice with the bass timbre and the high voice with the small timbre, but they don't have to be. You can move between them. Wow, I'm I'm, I'm sort of fascinated. Fascinated. <laughs> this is this is a real educational slot for me today. So I'm loving this. This is a yeah, and uh, <laughs> you're amazing use of your voice there. Yeah, yeah. You, well, it's kind of the day job, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, I mean, I can imagine <laughs> being one of your students or clients, and uh, and you, you've got some amazing ways of of of. of Giving an example of what you're of what you're trying to explain because I, I I didn't have this idea of timbre in my head but now I understand it's around the pay, the, the bass the treble the the richness and and all those things it's not just around as you say the uh, the pitch or the note it's it's about everything else isn't it so but yeah. I guess the other side of, it, the other side of testosterone is is lung capacity so presumably a lot of resonance comes from mm-hmm. the chest doesn't it well. Now, actually, that's something of a myth. So we talk about chest resonance and head resonance, and they're useful bits of terminology as imagery, but they're not actually physiologically true. So the voice is fairly linear. The air comes up from the lungs through the chest and up to the throat, and at the level of the larynx is where it meets your vocal cords, and that's where the vibration happens, and the sound then travels up and out through the mouth. So if you are, and all the resonance happens beyond that point. So if you were resonating in the chest, you'd be inhaling and speaking out of the wrong end (laughs) Um, because you would have to have air flowing into the chest in order for resonance to be down there. Also the chest, although it feels empty because it's because of the thoracic cavity needs capacity for the lungs, actually it's a sealed unit and you can't resonate anything in there because you can't get any sound into the empty spaces. However, and the same with the head, one assumes that the head is also quite full, one hopes. <laughs> um, and you can't resonate the sound outside of the oral cavity. You can't get it outside of the mouth or the nose. Um, you can't resonate in the forehead or in the mask. Or in th- These are all images that we've used in voice training to help people understand the sense of the thing, because actually what it feels like is just as important as what it actually is. So you can try as the experiment, and listeners can do the same thing. If you put your hand on the top of your chest, 
and make the lowest kind of rumbliest sound that you can, wherever that pitch range is, you'll feel vibration there, but you're not actually resonating the sound there. You're feeling sympathetic vibration. The bits of your body that are at the same frequency as that sound vibrate in sympathy with them. Um, So head and chest are useful ways of describing a set of vocal behaviours But actually, all of the resonance is done in the throat, nose and mouth in quite a small space. So it's a linear system. So lung capacity has an effect on the voice in terms of how long we can phrase for, how long we can keep going and how long we can keep speaking. But it doesn't affect the volume or the resonance of the voice, Um, because the other myth that's one that most people carry, again, mostly because society tells us this actually, is that more breath does not equal more voice Um, in the same way that more petrol doesn't equal going faster. You just overflow the petrol tank. So when, and you can feel it really easily. So again, another experiment we can all do over the magic of the airwaves is that if you put your hand uh, in front of your mouth and just make a really quiet, breathy sound, or any comfortable pitch, doesn't matter where the pitch is, you can feel the air there. And now if you put your hand in the same place and yell at it, Yay! Uh, If you yell at it, there's no air or there's less air. So the louder we are, the less air actually comes out of your mouth. The quieter we are, the more air comes out. It's a a real anomaly of how we perceive things. Um, But all of that said, (laughs) all of that said, I draw a little bit on NLP, on um, Neuro Linguistic Programming, and a lot of mirroring work with my clients So when somebody comes into the studio, they might say to me, I have real problem resonating my voice in my chest uh, because it all seems to be stuck in my head and I need to resonate in my chest more. And if I say to them, oh, well, actually, that's not what you're doing and unpick it all, I'm probably just going to bamboozle them. So in my head, I'm going, "Okay, cool. What we're actually working on is thick vocal folds and a low larynx and what have you. But then I'll give them what they asked for and say, yeah, can you feel that there now? Is that satisfactory for you? oh yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to feel. That feels good. And then, you know, some, some clients will come in and want to get into the nitty gritty and understand it. And some clients just want a quick fix and other clients think they have one idea and we need to meet in the middle. And so it's a really, um, a really flexible thing actually of meeting the clients where they are. So what's going on in my head and my body then? Because I'm, so if I'm at a, a, a function and someone says to me, Joe, mm-hmm. can you get everyone's attention? We need to get everyone back in the room. And I, first thing I do is I take a, a massive breath. I expand my, my, my body and my chest and I, and I roar yeah. with the deepest voice I have. And I feel that whole <laughs> exercise is, is digging into me and, and, and throwing it out. But you're, what you're saying is it's psychological, yeah. not, not reality, is it? It's, it's a little of each, but mostly on the psychological side, because, uh, like I was saying earlier on, actually, when you take in a big breath, you, you increase your presence, you grow physically, yeah. you increase your presence in the room and you tell your body that everything is fine. Um, because when we feel short of breath, we're normally in panic and we don't like being in that state. When we feel we can take a big breath in, we feel in command and in control. So actually we're releasing chemicals from the brain that are helping us to feel in control and in command that will help us to vocalize in that manner. Um, but if you, when you're making that roaring sound, if you put your hand in front of your mouth, you'll find not much of that air is actually coming out. Uh, so for the vast majority of people, 
they lose air by being quiet. So actually, if we think of that kind of whispery sound, um, leaning in on the mic a little bit and kind of doing the, uh, the sort of Mariella Frost drop, a podo.co.uk kind of a thing in there, that kind of breathy sound is very inefficient because the fuel of the voice is breath. And so if there's breath leaking through to make it breathy, then actually we've got a fuel leak. Whereas actually, if you're kind of in your Brian Blessed voice in here, you're in a much bigger, more robust vocalization, which means that although there might be lots of air in your body, it's not going anywhere very quickly. You can keep doing that for, for much longer. Um, so it's, it's about the psychological cue of feeling like you own the space and you can, you have the right to take in that amount of air and produce that amount of sound. Um, and also when we gather the body in that manner, we encourage muscular work in the back, in the lap muscles, and also in the lower abdominal muscles in the pelvic floor that help to stabilize the larynx and the breath mechanism to make the voice optimal. Uh, we call that process anchoring. So there is an amount of that going on as well. So taking from that, I, I should be able to create the same impact and presence with a just a, a relaxed posture and, and believing that just by making my voice loud without, without puffing myself up, it should have the same effect. This is Yeah, absolutely. Because if you think about the times in nature, because uh, that's what it always comes back to, is actually what were we designed to do with the vocal mm. gestures. So if you think of somebody walking along the high street, they've got their earphones in, they're on Snapchat, and they're about to walk in front of the number 17 bus. You don't have time to stand there, take a big deep inhale, present your body and go, stop, because that sucker's smush. They're gone. They're out of there, right? In that moment, you've got to take a short, sharp breath. Stop, look out. You, sorry, I'm deafening your, your uh, you have to do a bit of mixing on this one. Um, but you, you take a short, sharp gasp to power the voice into that energetic vocalization. Whereas actually when you're going to cry, when something's really sad, we take that really low, slow kind of, oh, kind of breath. And that's a slower, lower place because it's going to use more air to do it. So it's always coming back to naturally, what does the body do in similar circumstances? If I were wandering about in a swamp, wearing a skin and carrying a club, what would my voice do in this set of circumstances? Um, and that normally tells us what to do. I think that's a sort of a blueprint for life actually quite often is what what does our instinct tell us to do in this moment so the, the whole posturing the, the puffing up the the presence is around making ourselves, as you say drawing breath in and when we take breath in we, we we create a kind of a presence around us that people then see that authority if you like from that presence so that's what we're really doing is creating that listen to me everybody starts yeah, exactly. And allowing ourselves to feel that, to be in our presence and go, I'm feeling strong. I deserve to, to make this sound. And the, the physical strength and the breath often go together, but they don't have to. If you think of um, a, a great political speaker or a rock and roll singer, somebody who uses their voice quite loudly and confidently, they're usually really physical with what they're doing. They gesture the sound. And actually even me saying those words there for your listeners, because obviously we can see each other on the, on the link that we're on, but for the listeners, if I punch the air as I speak, you hear that energy in the sound. So we use our physicality to engage the muscles that support the voice, but I can kind of create the same effect without doing it. It's just less 
you, you feel more riled up about it. You see the rock singer thrashing into the guitar or hanging mm. onto the mic. That's that anchoring idea of the body feeling physically strong and giving us permission to hit these sounds. Whereas when we're feeling not in our power, not in our presence, when we're feeling under threat, we get physically smaller and the breath becomes weaker and shallower and the voice mm. will therefore follow suit. Um, now I can kind of hold a posture like a kind of strong man. I can still speak in a really kind of quiet voice, but it feels odd <laughs> to mm. do. It looks probably quite odd as well. Um, but if I kind of shrink my posture and allow myself to kind of come into a smaller space, it feeds the psychology of what the voice is, is doing. Yeah, I really get this feel for it. That it's it's not just your voice; it's your entire psyche and body and posture and how you're perceived. It's, it's a real yeah. package, isn't it? And your voice is just one component of this presence. Yeah, absolutely. And in that kind of chicken and egg scenario of the package, actually, for some people, if they don't feel physically confident in a particular space, their voice won't demonstrate confidence and by the same token the other side of the same coin is if the voice isn't confident they won't feel confident in that space so there's there's a whole kind of chicken and egg thing there with speakers um and that's not just professional speakers and singers which i've referenced a lot in this kind of conversation but actually for people just at work who use the phone a lot or are on zoom a lot and they're using their voice professionally without realizing it because no one's saying oh you're a professional speaker but actually they're a call center worker managing six hours of telephone calls on a shift. They're a professional voice user. And if they are not feeling confident about what their voice is going to do, they won't feel confident in the space that they're in, whether that's the work environment or their physical body. So, okay. I've got a bit of confusion now. So why <laughs> do we tend to see large size opera singers? We have this belief that all of this deep power of an opera singer comes from this big chest cavity that they can dive into. What you're saying here is a lot of this power doesn't come from the resonance because you say the air is traveling in the wrong direction at that point. Yeah, exactly. And some of that is just about the kind of image that we hold of the sort of Wagnerian soprano with the horns, you know, <laughs> that we hat on, um, that we kind of hold that image as going, oh yeah, that's what an opera singer looks like. But actually, very often when you look at, um, at, at great opera singers, there are, of course, you think immediately of Pavarotti and um, Bryn Terfel, for example, who are quite physically large guys. But equally, if you think of Jose Carreras, who was a, one of the three tenors as well and was a contemporary of Pavarotti, he was a tiny little guy. Um, if you think of uh, some of the contemporary opera singers now, um, Elizabeth Llewellyn and Pamela Hay, they're, they're small-built, slight people because the power of the voice is not in the size of the the instrument it's in mm. the the resonance and the reason why opera singers train for so many years is because actually they they're going into it's like hearing in three dimensions they're going into incredible detail about the resonance of the voice um that for example the uh, we talked about that sympathetic resonance before the fact that one part of the body vibrates in sympathy with another the most audible frequency for human ears uh, is give or take 2,800 hertz, somewhere between 2,800 and 3,000 hertz. And that's the frequency of baby cry, which is an evolutionary advantage because it sits at a point that it's audible above anything else. But actually, if we emulate that sound as an adult, we finish up with a voice that's like this, which is really annoying. 
And the reason the voice is so annoying when you hear that person on a bus and you're like, I need to find where that person is and stop them. <laughs> the reason we have that sensation is because it sits at the frequency that blocks out every other thought we're trying to have. Because from an evolutionary basis, it allows us to hear this baby cry. So opera singers and uh, performers in general have often you learned to use this resonant frequency at 2,800 hertz. Because at that frequency, the space above the larynx that you're resonating in is about one centimeter wide by three centimeters long, which is roughly the same size as your ear canal. So you're getting sympathetic resonance in the ear canal of the audience. So they're not louder than the orchestra they're singing over with no microphone. They're more hearable. They're putting on a vocal high-vis jacket and sitting at a frequency that's just a bit jazzier for our ears. So that when we talk about projecting the voice... That's what we're doing. We're actually, again, it's the the perception versus actually what we, we're doing. We think of, if I kind of go into a quite a big, into my sort of Bryn Terfel voice down here somewhere, that kind of resonance in there. The resonance comes from a narrowing and creating a really small space in the throat. But we think of it as being a really big space because it's a louder sound. But the, the loudest thing that we know for in day-to-day life usually is baby cry and babies are tiny. They don't need a big chest cavity. They can hit 2,800 Hertz and get straight across the, the, uh, the frequency straight into our ears. <laughs> this is absolutely fascinating. So there's, there's a few well-known comedians that have a, an annoying baby type voice, isn't there? Do they, do you think that's natural? Do you think it's just that, that they work on that? I think they're probably milking it. I think they're probably yeah. working on it um, because it, it gets a laugh. Um, it, it sort of refers back to what you were saying about when you begin speaking somewhere that actually if there's a, a, a dissonance between the person that we see and the voice that they come out with, it gives that shock and awe tactic. And if it's a big, powerful voice, we're like, oh, right, okay. Whereas actually if we expect it to be a big, powerful voice and it kind of comes out in here somewhere, it's kind of funny because it's a – you know, we tend to avoid yeah. that sound. People don't necessarily want to go around talking like that. And so you, we, we know immediately that's a sort of Punch and Judy stock character. You know, it's a stock comedy mm-hmm. character in the same manner as the big opera singer with the, with the horns on the head. You know, it's the, the kind of um, the Commedia dell'arte version of that character. It's heightened mm-hmm. and we know what to expect from that. Um, yeah. And the, the say that just led me on to another thought, Joanne, which was this, that quite often there's an emotional response to a voice that we're not aware of, where um, when we hear that voice, we instinctively know that it's funny because actually when we laugh, the larynx often rises <laughs> up there in that kind of, yeah, so if I kind of speak in this place, it, it makes us, we, we want to join in with what we're hearing and it makes us laugh when we do it. So there's such a thing as vocal body language that actually we adopt the physical postures in the body and the breath of the voices that we're hearing in order to understand how they feel. So if someone rings up and goes, Hey, Joanne, how are you? You're right. Chances are you'll go, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. What's that? We, we vocally mirror them because partly that's making them feel comfortable, but more importantly, it's allowing us to register the emotion that they are feeling by physically experiencing what that emotion feels like. By the same token, hey, oh my God, guess what? 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 I don't know what happened. We we join in with that energy to the point where we're, it's so embedded in us that one of the primary ways we understand how other people feel 
is not just by listening to them, but also by mirroring muscularly what that person is doing to try on their voice. So if you hear someone pretend to cry, you understand intellectually that it's sad, but you don't feel sad. If you hear someone actually cry, your voice joins in with those gestures and you feel sad. Um, the same with laughter, the same with cheering, whatever the, 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 the vocal gesture is. Um, there's the famous bit in, uh, in the musical Les Miserables where, uh, the main character Jean Valjean sings a song called The Prayer. Um, uh, people generally know as Bring Him Home. And, um, it's, it's high. It's in this sort of light falsetto place, which you can do just in a pure falsetto. So if I just, I'm going to sing a couple of bars only and just go, God on high, hear my prayer. So it's light and falsetto-y, but actually it's really sad and he's pleading. So if I take that sound and if I take a moment to set up the sensation of crying in my breath and my voice, and then I sing it, God on high, hear my prayer. We have a slightly different emotional response as an audience because we sense that this person is sad, even through the music. Um, and so we make that emotional connection through the voice as well. I'm... I'm sat here in, in awe. This is an absolutely incredible conversation. <laughs> um, another thing that's going through my head right now is you talked about we mirror and you, you talked about, yeah, someone comes mm. in bouncing and happy. We tend to mirror that bouncing. Is, so is that what's happening when we hear maybe a strong regional accent or something? Because I've, I've got a friend <laughs> who comes from Todmorden in Yorkshire and he, he always comes in and says, hey, you you're all right, you're all right, hey, you you're all right. And everybody will greet him but always say, hiya, how you doing? You're right. And it's like, why doesn't he mirror us? But we always end up mirroring him. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, um, dialects are a really interesting one and accents in particular, just the whole field of that is something that really fascinates me because all of us are aware that we have slightly different voices for different scenarios usually. So we have our kind of, I'm speaking to the mum on the phone voice, which might be different than I'm out with the girls for a night voice that, you know, that we have these slightly different vocal behaviours. And dialect, when you've got a strong regional dialect, you've either got a person who's got a strong identity that comes with that, or someone who has got the flip side of it and has got outsider imposter syndrome in the environment they're in. So it depends on how that person is psychologically feeling in that moment. Can I come into this space and proper own it and be myself and everyone will join in and that'll be great? Or actually, am I arriving here and everybody talks like this and it's all, you know, in Islington? <laughs> um, you need to build a face with that as well, Islington. Sorry, Islington people. Um, so if you're kind of in that place, then suddenly you find that the accent slightly starts to die away and you, you just get occasional moments of it because we're trying to, f we're trying to figure out whose tribe is dominant. And that's to do with the psychology of actually in that moment, who's the person in the room who's presenting the most confidence. And I'm absolutely terrible for just taking on the accents of the people around me, because I'm so used to doing it. Firstly, as an actor years ago, it was something that I found that I was quite good at. And actually I'm bilingual. I have, uh, I'm, I speak German as well as English. And I think growing up with two languages meant that my ear is quite attuned to what we call prosody, which is the musicality of speech. Um, so 
each of us is musical. This, this is, I'm going to just say one sentence on this because I go off on a tangent otherwise, but there's no such thing as people who can't sing. There's just people who haven't sung yet. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, but we're all musical because we all, we learn as babies that blah, 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 is an angry musicality and ah, da, 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 is a happy musicality. And so we learn these shapes and accents have that prosody to them. So, um, if you think of like a kind of Scouse sort of Liverpoolian accent, there's that kind of slight sort of sing song to it when you speak that you can go up. But if I take that into my own voice and try and speak to you like that, it sounds absolutely ridiculous because the musicality is wrong. And equally, if I take the prosody of my Southern English Berkshire accent and take that into, um, actually it's really hard to take that into a Scouse. If I try and take that kind of monotonous prosody into Scouse, I just sound really bored all the time. So it's, you've got to find where that sort of, uh, where the dominance is in the room and what musicality you're matching with the other people around you. And I do it so instinctively. I walk into spaces and start talking to someone and I accidentally finish up doing an impersonation of them <laughs> um, just because it's become so much a part of what I, what I do, but we can use that in an inclusion sense. If we're aware of that sense of prosody, that musicality, that if somebody enters a space and everyone is saying to them, sorry, what, pardon? Hey, excuse me. Sorry. Because they have a, a regional dialect or an international dialect, they're speaking English as a second language or because the voice doesn't seem to match the person that you see standing in front of you or because they don't feel in their power. So they're kind of de-voicing here. Those are things that from an inclusion point of view are really important actually to allow people not only to understand what they can do with their voice, but also communication is two way. There's no point learning how to make sound if you don't learn how to listen to it as well. So what, what is happening in the acoustic landscape of the workspace that you are in or the family life that you're in or the friendship group that you're in that is being inclusive or exclusive of certain people? And vocal exclusion is a really genuine mm. thing that people experience. Yeah, I was going to ask you this. So w w there are many studies that show regional accents can introduce a whole lot of bias based on candidate suitability, intelligence, capability, all these things. So yeah. is it is it a a learned thing? So the Scouse accent, because we associate people from Liverpool or that area as being you know, stereotypically, you know, I, I don't want to get into the stereotypes we can have from Scouse people, but do we associate <laughs> the stereotypes we have from Scouse people with the accent or does the accent create a distrust in us? Which is it, chicken and egg there? It's, it's in my opinion, and in, in terms of the research that, that is out there, it's very much a deeply ingrained societal bias against the mm. accents. Um, and it really comes from the time of the beginning of recorded media. So as soon as we start getting the radio and the radio is being broadcast from London and we have RP received pronunciation. So as I said before, you kind of get this terribly, terribly BBC voice with everyone wearing their tuxedos on a Friday night to, you know, that's what we start to hear uh, and we get the idea of the Queen's English, the King's English. There's a correct way of speaking. And actually, these things are not not true. But as soon as you get mass media, we can start to put out the message that this is what people are supposed to sound like. Um, and because the... So RP is a dialect, um, received pronunciation, is a non-geographic dialect. People use RP all over the country. It doesn't belong to a region. It belongs to a sense of a bygone era where class was a thing that you could refer to and would have a certain vocal sound. 
So the idea of the upper classes in those heavy inverted commas, again, of having this particular way of speaking that was better than everybody else, which of course it isn't, but that, that didn't belong to a geography. So you then immediately in whatever place you're in, if you're in, I don't know, Devon, I was talking to somebody from Devon on a call this morning, that actually you've got somebody there who's the Lord of the Manor who speaks in this way and somebody else there who's got a kind of more relaxed Devonshire accent. There's a them and us. There's a the Lord of the Manor and the serfs kind of thing that's, that is just so wrong but so ingrained in us that, you know, even if you say to people who would consider themselves, you know, not biased in any way that would consider themselves working class that would consider themselves um, open to all sorts of different things. If you said to them, you know, would have you, can you imagine a time where the prime minister would have a brummy accent? Most of them would instinctively chuckle at that and go, well, no, you couldn't do that. Well, why not? Why, why couldn't you? But we have this ingrained bias that the comedy characters are the regional dialects and the serious people are not. Um, and that's, that's a real issue. Actually, it's a real problem. Uh, and it's something that since mass media at the beginning of the 2000s has become much more inclusive of regional dialect and different voices in general, um, there is now a sense that maybe we'll eventually start to push back on this. But it includes things like speech impediment, um, like uh, learning disability and physical disability that have an impairment on the voice, uh, and of course, gender as well. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's again another reason that I opted not to do anything about my voice because I have a kind of a, a Hampshire home counties type voice. People say um I have like a radio nighttime radio voice. If I'm easy to listen to, I thought, well, if I mess with it, I might, might mess with something that is important that people resonate with. And yeah. I, I'm also aware that people have told me my voice is very distinctive and, and they can pick my voice out at, as a unique person more than maybe I could about other people. Because I, I, I speak to someone and they phoned me up and said, I've just seen you on television and they live in Sweden. And I took part in a TV documentary some years ago and they were broadcasting that TV documentary in English in Sweden. And they were in the kitchen and they went, hang on a minute, that's my friend Joanne. And they ran into the lounge and there I was on telly. Um, So I'm also aware that we we have this voice print of people, don't we? So we we do, as well as the visual cues or the other cues, the um, the subtle stuff, that, that voice print is also very strong. Yeah, it is. And that's a really nice way of putting it, actually, the, the, the idea of a voice print, um, that we have that sense of who we are so embedded in the way that the voice works that, as you say, people can pick us out of a crowd. Often people can pick out um, a uh, an imposter, if you like, with a particular regional dialect. You know, I know I'm doing sort of various cod dialects during the course of the interview, but people can pick out the imposter. Um and sometimes the otherness can be beneficial. So I spent uh, 10 months living in the US uh, when I was working out there on a show. And uh, we were in a, <laughs> a very curious place called um, Branson, Missouri. I don't know if anyone's ever been, but Branson, when I was there 20 odd years ago, had 47 theatres and a Kmart. And that was it. And it was in the middle of nowhere. Um, and Dolly Parton was there and the Osmonds were there and Andy Williams, God rest him, was there. And they all had these theatres that they did their shows and they bust the tourists in and you all watch seven shows in a day and all got bust home again. So at nighttime, you just had actors and tumbleweed really. And I remember going down to, um, to the supermarket and every week I went down there, I'd meet someone at the checkout, you know, that'd be so, you know, so thank you very much. I'd just have a conversation with them. Oh my God, are you from England? Where are you from? 
and we, it would become a conversation and it was really lovely and it was very warm. But then after a while, I was like, I just want my shopping. <laughs> so when I was in the supermarket, I'd work in a North American dialect that wasn't specific to the area that they were in. That, so I couldn't be caught out on the little specifics of it. So I was working in a slightly different dialect, but it just meant that I could get through the supermarket quicker. <laughs> um, so it kind of became a, uh, I was avoiding my voice print in order to get through the supermarket quicker. But by the same token, it was used years ago when I was a child. I was at a stage school as a kid. Um, and I filmed a commercial in the States back in the 80s um, for uh, biscuits out there or cookies called Fruit Newtons. And they specifically wanted a British kid on the advert because this was in the days before streaming and what have you. And when the, when the commercial breaks came on, people got up to make a cup of coffee and they knew if they heard a British accent, people would come back in to see what was on the TV because the Americans generally love the British accent. And so they hired a British kid to do the commercial and they, they made it as cod British as possible. I was lying in a bed wearing silk pajamas with a suit of armor on either side, which was ridiculous. Um, but it meant that people listened and heard and came back into the room and the advert ran for years. Actually, mm. it was quite funny. Once I was older, I was like, oh, crikey, here we go again. <laughs> um, so you can use it for or against, you know. Yeah, well, I was, uh, I worked for a bank. Uh, it was Coots, yeah, Coots and Co., the, uh, the bank of the royal yeah, yeah. family and the, and the upper, upper the Royal bankers, um, yeah. And I went, I was in Beverly Hills in Rodeo Drive and they had an, they had a, a small little, uh, uh, office there, not, not really a banking counter, but just where you could, their clients could come in and, and, and meet their, 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 their relationship manager. And when I was there doing some IT work, they sort of said, would you mind recording our answer phone message for us? I was like, what? <laughs> they wanted a, a, a posh British accent for their Rodeo Drive answer phone message. It's like, I just, <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm guessing they've erased it by now, but yeah, it must have run for years. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. And so that the idea of voice print, that idea of who am I, what's my vocal identity, you know, mm. that's what kind of ties it all together really. And, and yeah. who do we want to present ourselves as out to the rest of the world? And on that note, Jamie, I, I'd love to dive into singing. I'd love to be able to sing. You know, I'm <laughs> one of these, I know I can sing, but I just haven't found my, the right note yet. It's like, it's like, yeah. No, yeah. amazing. Honestly, that was a, a truly, truly entertaining and inspirational conversation we just had. So how can people get hold of you? Because oh, I'm, you I'm sure much. everybody wants to find out more. <laughs> um, so I'm prolific across most social media. I encourage people, if you're listening to the podcast, come and connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm often on there. Uh, my LinkedIn profile is just the normal linkedin.com forward slash. And then it's Jamie dash read dash voice. So really easy to find Jamie read voice. Um, I'm also on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter, um, and quite active on, on social media channels. And I just kind of love having a chat to people about where they are. Um, I'm, you know, just answering quick questions on things. So don't feel that, you know, it's going to be a sales call or something horrible. I'm not that guy on LinkedIn, just kind of reach out and make contact. And yeah, I'm always happy to speak to people. Absolutely fascinating. And yeah, you, you, every time we've spoken, I've come away inspired. So yeah, if I'm sure people will take you <laughs> up on that. So thank you so much. And also a huge thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in, uh, for getting this far. Uh, if you're not already, please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast at B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, um, share the love. I have a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by over the next few weeks or months. And of course, if you're listening and you'd like to be a guest or you know someone who'd like to be getting to make contact, and I'd also welcome any feedback on, and suggestions on how 
we can improve future shows if that's possible. Please email me, joe.lockwood at seachangehappen.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast with you today. Catch you next time. Bye.